Well, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter number 2, and while you're finding that passage of Scripture, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been persecuted for following Jesus? And I want you to think about that for just a moment because it's a question that you may never have thought about, but I do want you to think about it today. Have you ever been persecuted because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to look at a verse on the screen this morning from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. It's an interesting verse, and notice what it says. It said, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let's read that together. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, if that verse is true, and we believe that it is, we know that it is, and if you are saved, and I hope that you are, then how would it be possible not to be persecuted for following Jesus? Notice what it says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not some might, but all will. Now, if I were preaching this sermon today in North Korea or in Somalia, or in China, or in uh, Pakistan, or in one of those countries, and the Christians were gathered together, and I began the sermon by saying, have you ever been persecuted for following Jesus? Somebody would say, John, have you lost your mind? We're being persecuted right now. Why do you think we're meeting underground? Why do you think we're meeting in this hidden place? We are being persecuted right here and right now. And if the government knew what we were doing, they would either lock us up or they would take our lives. And so, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, according to the Scriptures, will suffer persecution. Now, as I've thought about persecution and what it means to be persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ... I think persecution can fall under two different categories. First of all, there is what we would call obvious persecution. Many of those Christians living in those places that I've just mentioned are obviously being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And this past week, I came across some statistics, and when I read all these articles and all, these, all this data, it was mind-boggling to me, and as I tried to put it in a sermon form, I said, I don't want to overwhelm the congregation with information, but I do want to read some today just so that you will get a feel for what is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Open Door Ministries, who is largely devoted to studying what is happening to Christians who are being persecuted, has reported that four out of five Christians living in the Middle East are currently experiencing high levels of persecution. Syria has lost 75% of its Christian population since 2011. Iraq has lost 87% of its Christian population since the Gulf War in 2003. In those two countries, many Christians have been killed. Many others have fled because they felt their lives were in jeopardy. Today, in the Middle East, only 5% of the people living in those Middle Eastern countries are Christians. A hundred years ago, it was 20%. 20% is not much. 5% is much less. In a place like Pakistan, if a person says Jesus is Lord, it is considered blasphemy. A person can be sentenced to death. 
In much of the world, violence against Christians actually decreased during COVID-19, but in places like Nigeria, high levels of violence rose by 30%. Villages of Christians were ransacked, fields and crops were destroyed. Over 340 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution. Last year, according to one report, and as you study these reports, some of the numbers vary a little bit, but according to one report, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith last year. Over 5,500 churches in China have been destroyed or closed down or confiscated. One out of eight Christians worldwide is experiencing high levels of intense persecution. Some are killed, others are imprisoned, some are raped, and some are kidnapped. I read that within the last two weeks in one of the Western Africa company, uh, countries, in fact, it would be two weeks ago this Tuesday, they were having a baptism service there. Fifteen Christians were being baptized, and at that service, 15 were killed. Some jihadists, do you know the word jihad, J-I-H-A-D? Some pronounce it jihad, but jihadist, it's known as holy war. And so in some of these countries that are antagonistic to Christians, they think if they can squelch the Christian movement, if they can kill Christians, that they have done a noble thing in the eyes of their imagined God. Now, why is it that so many of these countries, why would North Korea, why would China, why would Pakistan, why would Afghanistan, why would Somalia, why would these countries be so antagonistic to the Christian movement and to Christians in particular? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, many governments are threatened by Jesus Christ. These leaders in these countries demand absolute loyalty. And when they see someone following Jesus, they are threatened by Jesus. Now, when I read that last week, that, that many of these leaders are threatened by Jesus, I thought they ought to be threatened by Jesus because one day they'll bow down at his uh, feet and they'll worship him. But they're threatened by Jesus, and they don't want any loyalty being exhibited to anybody other than to themselves. Not only that, many of the, well, not many, but in these countries I've mentioned and others, Christianity is in opposition to the majority cultural faith. And so in these places, you have other faiths that are the dominant faiths. And so Christianity goes against that. And so it doesn't fit in. And so they're trying to just wipe it out. And so these are the types of persecution that I'm saying it's obvious. We know what is happening and it's easy to call that persecution. But did you know some persecution is not so obvious? It's what I would call subtle persecution. It's persecution. It's a person who is being persecuted for his or her faith in Jesus Christ. They're not being imprisoned. They're not being beaten. They're not being killed. But something is happening in their life is a direct result of not only their faith in Jesus, but of because of their commitment to follow Jesus Christ, they are being persecuted. Now, the English word persecuted comes from the Greek word dioko, and it literally means to pursue or to drive away. Someone who is persecuting somebody else for their faith in Jesus Christ, what are they doing? They're pursuing them, or they're trying to drive them away. They're trying to push them out because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, 
As I was preparing this message last week and thinking about different types of persecution that could be happening today subtly, it's not obvious. Nobody's being beheaded today in America because of their faith in Christ, certainly not where we live, but there are people who are being persecuted for their faith. I thought of this example last week. I'm reluctant to use it, but I feel led to say it because it may apply to one lady here today or to one lady who's watching at home. Let's play like that here you have a man and a woman and they've been married for a few years and neither one of them are saved. They've never gone to church. They've never followed God. They don't own a Bible. They've never thought about tithing. They're living what you would call a secular life or maybe they're even following another religion. In the process of time, through a friend at work, the lady gets saved. She gives her life to Jesus Christ, and she begins to experience a peace and a joy that she's never known in all of her life. Her husband sees the change. She starts going to church every Sunday. They have two different jobs, and so she feels that she should begin to tithe on her income to the church. She gets up early. She reads her Bible. She has her prayer time. She's at church on Wednesday night. She's sharing her faith with others. And her husband, who's following either no God or some other religion, is bothered by his wife's new behavior. And so as time goes by, he says to her, I can't take all this talk talk about Jesus. I can't take you getting up early and staying up late and reading your Bible and going to church on Sunday. Sunday used to be the day we would go to the lake. Sunday we were on the jet ski. Sunday we were in the boat. And now you're at church and if we have kids, are you going to raise our kids to follow this Jesus of yours? And the husband says to the wife, you have to decide, Jesus or me. Now when that man says that to that lady, He's not threatening to beat her or to behead her or to kill her, but I'll tell you what he's doing. He's persecuting her. He is pursuing her. He is backing her in a corner, and he is saying to her, you have to choose Jesus or me. It's persecution. It's not obvious persecution. It's not the type of persecution I've just mentioned, but it is persecution nonetheless. It is dioko. It is someone pursuing another, someone trying to drive another person away from their faith in Jesus, or if they can't do that, to drive them out of their presence. And so what is a lady in that situation supposed to do? Well, she's supposed to do everything she can to work all that out, but at the same time, her ultimate allegiance must be to Jesus Christ. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, we're studying the second of the seven churches that are mentioned in these two chapters, in chapters 2 and 3. Last week, it was the church at Ephesus who had lost, who had left their first love. Today, it is the church of Smyrna, and they were a persecuted church. Smyrna, the city of Smyrna, is located in, or was located in modern-day Turkey, Izmir, Turkey. It's about 35 miles away from the city of Ephesus. And so when John uh, is writing down the message that Jesus has for this church, it's very interesting. Now, Smyrna was a seaport city. It was also a commercial center known for its fine wines There was a temple there to the Roman emperor Tiberius, and many worshipped him. Remember, back in the first century, Rome ruled the world. And Rome had these emperors that were either referred to as the emperor or to Caesars, kind of like what we would think of in our country as the president, except it's taken to an entirely another level because the Roman emperor demanded to be worshipped. 
and that, he would, that you would say of him, Caesar is Lord. You are the master. You are the king. Now, back in this era, you could still worship other gods, but you had to say Caesar is Lord. And if you refused to say Caesar is Lord, you could be arrested or you could be killed. But again, you could still worship your other gods. Well, that left Christians in a very tight spot. Because for a Christian, we can't say Caesar is Lord and then come down here on Sunday and worship Jesus. The thing about Jesus is he demands total allegiance, exclusivity. He is the only one who is to be worshipped. And so the Christians there in Smyrna were refusing to say Caesar is Lord. And as a result, they were being persecuted and even killed for their faith. Now, we only have a few verses about the church of Smyrna. In fact, we only have uh, four verses, verses 8 through 11. But in these four verses, Jesus has a very practical, direct message for those Christians who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, as we will see, Jesus said seven things to these Christians who are being persecuted. And to you today who feel like at home, at work, in your relationships, with friends, whatever it might be, that you are somewhat being persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're being left out. Maybe you're being ignored or something like that. Or maybe today you would say, you know, John, I don't know that I'm being persecuted at the present time, but I am going through a very difficult time in my life. If you will just listen, and you might want to jot what I'm about to give you down, seven specific things that Jesus has to say today to those who are being persecuted and, again, to those who are going through a hard time. So the first thing that Jesus has to say, now, before I get into this, are you ready for the list? If you're ready, say amen. Okay, because I want to give you these. The first thing Jesus says is, I have conquered death. Now, think about that. If you're in Smyrna and you're seeing your family members and friends be killed, and you're knowing that your time is coming. You're probably going to be killed for your faith in Jesus Christ. For him to say to you, don't worry about death, I have already conquered it. Look in verse number 8. And to the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Jesus said, I want you to understand, you Christians who are being persecuted and about to be killed, you have nothing to fear because I was dead and I came back to life. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, they may kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. And as soon as your body dies, your soul will immediately be in heaven and in the presence of God with me. I have conquered death. That's a good word today for somebody who's grieving the loss of a spouse or a child or a parent or a family member or a friend, that Jesus Christ has conquered death. The second thing Jesus said to this church, not only has he conquered death, but Jesus said, I know what's happening to you. I know what you're going through. Look in verse 9. I know, underline those two words, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty. He said, I know what you're going through. Sometimes in life, we just want to feel like somebody understands how we feel and what we're facing. And one of the causes of depression in life is a person is going through something and they think nobody understands how I feel. But Jesus 
says to this church, I know how you feel. And then the next thing Jesus said is, he said, you have everything you need to fight this battle. Look at that verse again. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. He's talking about spiritual wealth. And Jesus is saying to them, you have everything you need. You have all the grace in the world, all the strength in the world, all the faith that you need. He said, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, many of the people who were killing these Christians in Smyrna were were Jews. They, they, they did not receive Jesus, and so in, in Jesus' mind, they were serving Satan. But nonetheless, Jesus says to these Christians there, you have everything you need to fight this battle. Now, as we go through life, there are a lot of battles out there. Sometimes there are physical battles or financial battles or emotional battles, but one of the things we need to remember, as a child of God, we have everything we need to fight that battle. A few weeks ago in a sermon, I mentioned a pastor that I like to listen to from time to time, a man named Jensen Franklin. Pastor's in north of Atlanta, Gainesville, Georgia. In fact, I was watching him on television before I came to church today. He was, he was preaching a good sermon. And when I saw him being interviewed the other night, he said, when I wake up every morning, this is what Jensen said. He said, I get out of bed, I go into the bathroom, I look myself in the mirror, and he said, every morning when I begin my day, I say three things to myself. And I thought, now this is going to be interesting what he says to himself every day. Because when I wake up every morning, the first thing I say is, is it morning already? Seemed like I just went to sleep and now it's already morning. Here's how Jensen starts his day. He looks in the mirror and he says, Jesus is with me. Now that's a good thing to remember. Second thing he says is, God is at the bottom. You know, sometimes in life we, we feel like we've bottomed out or we've hit rock bottom. And somebody, sometimes somebody will say that, man, I have just hit the bottom. Jensen said this, remember this, Jesus Christ is the foundation of our lives. The foundation's at the bottom. And so when we hit the bottom, God is there. Let me give you a scripture verse to back that up. In Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 27, it says, underneath are the everlasting arms. That no matter what we go through in life, God is at the bottom, and God is holding us up. Now, I'm going to make us repeat these three things in a moment because this is something we need to get into our vocabulary and into our lives. Jesus is with me. God is at the bottom. And the third thing he says is, I have faith for this. I have faith for this. In other words, whatever I'm facing today, whatever comes my way today, whatever season of life I might be going through right now, I have faith for this. The Bible says that to every person, God has given a measure of faith. And so we want our faith to grow, but nonetheless, we all have faith. So think about that. At the beginning of the day, if we can remember, Jesus is with me. God is at the bottom. I have faith for this. Let's try to say that together. Ready? Let's go. Jesus is with me. God is at the bottom. I have faith for this. Now, I want you to get that, so I want you to say it by yourself on three. One, two, three. That's the first time you've ever remembered anything that I've said like that. And it kind of bothers me because I didn't say it. I was quoting somebody else who said it. But if you can remember, see, when Jesus said to that church, remember your, your wealth, you're rich, you may be materially poor, 
You may not have a lot of money in the bank or a big house to live in, but spiritually speaking, you are wealthy. You are rich. You have the grace of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the strength of God, the faith that God has given you to fight this battle. And friend, to you today who are fighting a battle, going through about this time, I want to say to you that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you have strength to fight the battle that you are currently facing. If you'll remember, Jesus is with you. God is at the bottom, and you have faith for this. You can do it. And that's what Jesus said to those in Smyrna who were being persecuted for their faith. Now, the fourth thing Jesus says, and it makes sense coming after that, he says, don't be afraid. Remember, I've conquered death. Remember, you have faith for this. Don't be afraid. Look in verse number 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Do not fear it. Uh, Don't be afraid. And God doesn't want us to ever be afraid. Remember this, fear is not from God. Anytime you have a fearful thought, it is not from God. That is from the devil himself. God, the Scripture says, has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So don't be afraid. And then the next thing that Jesus says to these persecuted Christians, he says, remember, what you're facing right now is a temporary test. It is not a permanent problem. Now, that's encouraging today. If you're battling cancer today, if you're going through something tough today, you need to remember that may not strictly be persecution, but it's, difficult. it's a hard time nonetheless. And remember, it's not a permanent problem. It's a temporary test. Look back in verse 10. He says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, was he talking about 10 literal days? Maybe. Probably he's using that phrase to talk about brevity of time. In other words, in the grand scheme of things, what you're going through today is not going to be very long. You know, God's Word is so timely. When I was preparing this message, I I wish you could see my Bible, and I know you can't from where you are, but years ago, I was in my own Bible reading, I was reading through this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 2. And I dated it, and I had not even connected these dots until late last night. But it was on Good Friday, which was April the 19th of a particular year. And I read this verse, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. And when I read that on Good Friday years ago, I, I don't even honestly remember reading this, but I did read it, and I, I even marked Good Friday, and I put the date by it. Last night, I was, I was reviewing that season of time in my life, and in less than two weeks from when I read that, that, that came back to be a blessing to me. And what God was saying to me then, what God was saying to the Christians in Smyrna years ago, and what he's saying to all of us today is, when you go through a difficult time in your life, whatever, it, whatever the difficulty may be, don't be afraid. And remember, it is a temporary test. It is not a permanent problem. This too shall 
pass. Now, the next thing Jesus was saying to the church is stay faithful and don't quit. Look at the end of verse 10. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know, when we're going through a hard time, if we give up and quit, we'll always wonder what God would have done or what God could have done if we would have stayed in the fight and tried to stay faithful to him. And Jesus says here to these Christians, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So don't give up. And I just feel led to say that to somebody today who's facing a challenge, a Mount Everest in your life. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep trusting God and keep moving forward. And then the next thing that Jesus said, the seventh thing, he says to them and he says to us, he says to you today, you can overcome what you're facing and you will overcome what you're facing because you are a child of God. Look in verse number 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And so Jesus was saying to these, to these Christians in Smyrna, listen, you're going to overcome this. Not only can you, but you will overcome. One of the marks of a child of God is that we overcome by God's grace everything that we face in life. Now, turn back just a few pages to the book of 1 John in chapter number 5. John wrote Revelation, and John, of course, wrote 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 5, I want to show you a verse, and I want you to mark this in your Bible. Verse number 4. 1 John 5, verse 4. And here's what the Scripture says. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, let's just slow down and think about that. Whatever is born of God, that is, if you've been saved, it doesn't say whatever is born of God has the possibility or the potential of overcoming the world. One of the proofs that you're truly saved is that when you go through a tough time in your life, you overcome that. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How do you overcome difficulty in life? By your faith in God, by your trust in God, by your conviction that he is in control of your life and that he will bring good uh, out of unthinkable bad. And so Jesus was saying to these Christians in Smyrna, listen, you can overcome what you're facing and you will overcome because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And so as a child of God, when your back's against the wall and you're up against it, you don't ever have to wonder, can I overcome this? Friend, not only can you overcome it, but you will overcome it. You must overcome it because you are a child of God. If you believe that, say amen. Now, I just gave you seven messages that Jesus had for the churches. Have you ever known me to go through seven points that quickly in all your life? Well, the reason I wanted to go through it so quickly is because I wanted to tell a story at the end, and I didn't want to have to rush the story. Some of you will have heard parts of this story, maybe all of it. Others of you will not have heard this story, but it is one of the greatest stories in the history of the church. And it's the best illustration I know about persecution. There was a man named Polycarp, P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P. In fact, I wanted to show his picture on the screen today, and I, I found a great picture uh, that we could show, but there were copyright uh, laws, so we can't show the picture. I thought if I could just show the picture of Polycarp, a picture is worth a thousand words. But since I couldn't find the picture, now I've got to give you a thousand words, right? And that's what I want to do. 
Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. In fact, Polycarp may have been the last person living who had had direct access to one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. John was the oldest disciple. John had mentored Polycarp. In fact, Polycarp ultimately became the pastor of the church in Smyrna. Some say that the old apostle John was the one who ordained him and helped him to establish himself in that position as pastor. Polycarp became the pastor of Smyrna several decades after John wrote this book of the Revelation. And when Polycarp was the pastor, the persecution in Smyrna had intensified even from what we were studying this morning. Polycarp's time, let's just use the, the year 155 A.D. as the key date for Polycarp's life. Christians that he was pastoring were being persecuted for their faith. They were being, uh, they were being imprisoned, and many of them were being taken to a place in Smyrna that was known as the arena. Now, when, when I say the arena, I want you to picture a large outdoor facility, maybe like the rodeo grounds across the street, except it was probably larger than that. Many of us have seen the picture of the Colosseum in Rome. Some of us have been to Rome, and we know that the Colosseum was a place not only where great sporting events took place, but in the first century, the Colosseum was a place where Christians were brought, and they were forced to either renounce their faith in Christ or to be killed for their faith in Christ. And the Colosseum is huge. It would be filled with thousands of people who were anti-Christ, anti-Christianity, and very much like we would go to NRG Stadium today or Minute Maid Park to watch a ball game and cheer for our team. These anti-Christians would go to the Colosseum and they would cheer as Christians were killed by wild animals. Back in those days, they would keep the wild animals in what you and I today would call the, the locker room or the dressing room area. And they had, they had gates or doors, and, and they would open these doors, and out would come a wild and hungry lion or a wild and hungry tiger, these wild animals, and they would maul and kill these Christians who refused to recant their faith, and the crowd would cheer. Well, in Smyrna, they didn't have the Colosseum, but they had an arena and these Christians were brought one after another to the arena. And they were said, they were told this by the proconsul. The proconsul was the, the governor uh, representing this, this area. And the proconsul would say, curse Christ or die. And those early Christians would say, I cannot curse Christ. Open the gate, out would come the animal, they would be killed. And the anti-Christians would applaud. Well, on a particular day, as they were watching this happen, and after the Christians for that day had been killed, the crowd started calling for Polycarp. We want Polycarp. We want Polycarp. We want Polycarp. After all, he's the leader of these Christians. He's the pastor of the church that they attend. How's he not being brought into the arena? How's he not having to pay for refusing to say Caesar is Lord? And so the officers were instructed to go and Polycarp and bring him to the arena. Interestingly enough, three days before Polycarp was arrested, he had had a dream. If you study this, you see that the details of the dream are somewhat disputed, but in the dream, he had had a vision that he would be burned alive 
for his faith in Jesus Christ. Well, on the day when the guards and the officers finally found where Polycarp was, he, had, he was in an upstairs room, and he had been resting, and he had been praying, and, and here come these, these authorities to, to arrest him, and some of Polycarp's friends who were in the house with him said, Polycarp, they're here to arrest you. Sneak out the back way, and we'll cover for you. Polycarp responded to his friends. Here was his quote. He said, God's will be done. He refused to run. He went downstairs. He met those who had come to arrest him. He spoke kindly to them. He asked how they were doing. And he asked his friends who were in the same house. He said, would you guys please prepare something for these men to eat and something for them to drink? They looked tired. They looked thirsty. They looked hungry. And he, they prepared something for them to eat. Polycarp said, I know that you're here to arrest me, and I promise I won't fight you. But I do have one request. He said, I'm asking you to give me one hour to pray before I'm arrested. They thought it was an odd request, but he was a kind and elderly man, and so they granted him that request. The one hour actually turned into two hours. They could overhear him praying, and the guards said to one another, what are we doing arresting a man like this? He's so tender. He's so kind. He's so meek. What are we doing? But we have to do it. And so when he finishes praying, They arrested Polycarp, and they began carrying him to the arena in Smyrna where he would have to either stand by his faith or renounce his faith. As he was going into the arena, Polycarp heard a voice from heaven, and that voice from heaven said to Polycarp, and I want to make sure that I get this quote exactly right because it's a great quote. The voice from heaven said this, Be strong, Polycarp. And play the man. Be strong and play the man. And so he went into the arena and he stood before the proconsul, and the proconsul said to Polycarp, He said, Polycarp, curse Christ and I will release you. And Polycarp said to that proconsul, that's one of the most well known quotes, by the way, in all of church history. He said, 86 years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. I cannot blaspheme my king and my savior. The proconsul, wanting to spare Polycarp's life, he's 86 years old, he's frail. And the proconsul thought, what are we going to gain by killing this man? And he said, Polycarp, if you refuse to curse Christ and you refuse to say Caesar is Lord, at least give some acknowledgement that the emperor has some godlike qualities, that he too is deity. You can stay true to Christ, but at least give some concession that the emperor is some form of deity. And Polycarp said, you speak to me like you don't know who I am. Hear it plain. I am a Christian. And I cannot say that the emperor is deity. Only Christ is Lord. And he said, Polycarp, if you, if you refuse to at least give some acknowledgement to the emperor, I'm going to open these gates and we're going to release the wild beast on you. Polycarp said, bring them forth. He said, Polycarp, the proconsul said, Polycarp, if you refuse to say Caesar is Lord, if you refuse to at least back off of your allegiance to Christ a little bit, we're going to burn you at the stake. 
Polycarp said, the fire that you're going to put on my body will burn out within about an hour. But the judgment of the ungodly will last forever. They lit the flames, his hands behind his back, and they began the process of setting Polycarp on fire. And here was the prayer that he prayed. Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour, that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. Among these, may I today be welcome before your face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. As the fires engulfed him and began to burn his body, his Christian friends who were watching this experience, watching their pastor, watching their leader literally be burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus Christ, they made an interesting observation. They said his body doesn't smell like flesh that is burning. Instead, they said, it smells like bread that is baking. A beautiful, sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. On February the 23rd, in the year 155 A.D., February the 23rd, by the way, is a Christian holiday, a day of celebration even today in many churches to remember the legacy of Polycarp. We celebrate the man who stayed true to his faith in Jesus Christ in the midst, in the face of the ultimate persecution. As I was finishing writing this out last night, I thought, how did he do that? And then I thought of those three things that Jensen Franklin said. Polycarp knew in his heart that Jesus was with him. He knew that God was at the bottom and that underneath were the everlasting arms. And he knew beyond the shadow of any doubt that he had faith for this, and that through that faith he could and he would overcome this trial. Friend, I want to say to you today, whatever you're facing, if you'll remember this, it's a temporary test, it's not a permanent problem. If you'll stay faithful and just refuse to quit, and if you can remember in the midst of the battle, Jesus is with you, God is at the bottom, and you have faith for this. You're going to come through it, and you're going to come through it in such a way that God is honored, that he is glorified, and that everybody in your circle of influence is blessed beyond measure because of your faithfulness. Amen.